Welcome to Scale Her Up, the female entrepreneur show with me, Brenda Hector. I'm a business growth specialist helping business owners to develop themselves and grow their businesses so they can achieve their goals and enjoy the lifestyle they dream of. I'm also on a mission to revolutionize the entrepreneurial landscape for women in business. In every podcast episode, I interview someone who has an inspiring story or some great advice for women aiming to start or scale their businesses. If you're new to the show, take a moment to subscribe and please check out the previous ones after listening to this. We've got an awesome community on Facebook. Just search for Scale Her Up and join in. So I'm delighted to have Caitlin Carlson with me on the Scale Her Up podcast today. Caitlin is uh, based in Boston, Massachusetts, US of A. Well, you're all about all about the finances in business and helping helping business people with finance. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. And in, and in terms of where the business crosses over into their personal finances. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Can you just maybe give us a bit of a, a background into how you got into business, Caitlin? Sure. Yes. Quickly after I graduated college, I went into finance. I was a psychology major in college, but I always envisioned myself in finance. And I initially started in asset management, which a lot of people know as mutual funds. And the firm that I worked for, we sold directly to financial advisors. I was in a management rotational program there. And that was really the first time that I learned about what financial advisors did. And I I knew that was really a marriage between my passions of psychology and finance, because I would be able to work with families and individuals and their money, um, which is just a fascinating topic in and of itself. So I was with the mutual fund company for a little over two years, and then I ended up transitioning into wealth management. At that point in time, we had actually moved down to the southeast of the country, and I ended up doing over 300 financial plans in my program as a wealth planning analyst for UBS Financial Services. And what I noticed in that experience was due to the nature of wealth management, we tended to be working with business owners at the end of their career. So typically what happens is a business owner, the majority of their net worth is wrapped up in the value of their business. And then when they go to sell, that's when it converts into liquidity. And that's really wealth manager specialty is managing the liquidity of those assets and making sure people don't run out of money. And so when I switched over to wealth management, I initially started out as a financial planner and then became a financial advisor myself. So I went from looking at the overall picture of business owner, even into the more granular like portfolio management and investment side of things. In my experience, I felt that there were a lot of opportunities that were missed for business owners to create wealth. And what happened is that created a lot of stress for a business owner at the end of their career, because typically they would come to me and say, I'm burned out. I can't do this anymore. And then we would look at the value of their company and what they would net out. And it wasn't going to be enough to support their lifestyle after selling the business. So it was sad in a way, because a lot of times we would have to tell business owners that it was going to take at least five years to get them out of the business. And then there were other things where I saw opportunities where they could have built their financial independence away from the company had they had access to the right advice sooner in their careers. So I spent about four years at UBS. I ended up 
working as a private wealth advisor. So working with people that were quite wealthy, definitely the wealthiest families in this country, um, which was fascinating. But ultimately, I left to start my own company. And my mission is to utilize the expertise that I developed and the network that I developed to empower female business owners. And the main driver behind that is because in working with those 300 clients, not one of them was a self-made woman. And I wanted to be part of changing that paradigm. So my firm, Theory Planning Partners, works exclusively with female business owners. And we try to work with women who are earlier in their journey as a business owner to teach them how to build personal wealth outside of their business. That's fantastic. When I talk to, to business owners, I ask them, what does the business look like when you're finished? And they don't, they don't understand what I mean at all. But going, if you know what it needs to look like when you come out, and a lot of people don't even think about how they will exit the business and, yeah. and then obviously what their finances will look like at that point. Yeah, I always think of the quote from Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. And it's so pertinent to the business owner. And it sounds counterintuitive, but I always say you have to begin with the end in mind. I think a lot of business owners, we're passionate people, we're passionate about what we do and also tend to be very optimistic people. And so we don't like to spend a lot of time thinking about the end or thinking about what could go wrong. And a lot of entrepreneurs think they're just going to work for forever, um, which is fine. And that's admirable. And that's great. But you might not feel that way in 20 years. And you want to be positioned in a place where you can walk away from the business and do so comfortably. A lot of what we're working on is, is really like building habits, building that muscle of running a company as if you were going to sell it. Um, and that day might come three years from now. And that day might come 30 years from now. Yeah, so that that's the, that's the financial plan, is it? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, specifically tailored to business owners because there are a lot of specific caveats that business owners have access to in terms of wealth building vehicles that an employee does not because ultimately, at least here in America, small business drives the economy. And yeah. so there are a lot of incentives for business owners to take care of themselves in terms of building financial independence, such as opening retirement accounts where they're able to put away a lot more than an employee of a company would be able to. So a lot of times I'm educating them on those options and those advantages really that are available to them and essentially a reward for taking the risk of becoming a business owner and employing other people. Do you talk to business, yeah, talking to them early when they're still in, in that risk? Yes. Yeah, so I... In terms of the clients that I take on, they tend to be a little bit more mature into that journey. They're typically running multi-seven into eight figures. But in terms of when I give any sort of talks or come on podcasts, a lot of it is about educating business owners who are still in that risk stage. Because so much of what I do is just instill the habits and make people aware of the solutions. And the earlier that you can do that in your career as a business owner, the better off you'll be. And it could start really small. Um, you know, it can start with like a few hundred dollars a month and, you know, a few thousand dollars a year. And then you can scale it up as you grow. But at least the infrastructure is there for you to scale it as you scale your business. So these habits that you're talking about, is that just putting a little bit aside into these wealth building vehicles? Yes, definitely. So 
essentially the fundamentals of a financial plan is where are we today? Where do we want to go? And how do we get there? So the first thing that I do when I take on a client is figure out where are we today? When I ask them where they want to go, as we just talked about, that's typically not formally defined. So a lot of the time we have to uncover what it is that they want their life to look like and define and quantify what that goal is. And then the strategy is very much about, okay, how do we get there? And in that conversation of how do we get there, that's when I educate them about the different retirement vehicles that are available and other ways like executive compensation plans or you know, defined benefit plans where you can put away a lot more money than people would think that you could. And what I like about that is it puts less pressure on a sale because it's sad, but the reality is eight out of 10 businesses do not sell, do not transact here in the US. And so the less reliant you are on the sale of your business, the better off you'll be. You can take less, you can, I mean, no one wants to liquidate their company, but at least you're in a position where you're less attached to the sale of the business. Mm -hmm. Whereas for a lot of business owners, they have a death grip on what value am I going to get? And what is a buyer willing to pay? And a buyer isn't always willing to pay what you need to get out of the business to support you for the rest of your life. So if you start with those smaller habits, when you're you know, in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, that can just be a very um, stress-free way to create your own financial independence. And so it's very much just knowing what is that number? What is that number that I would have to save on a monthly basis to build that complete financial independence away from my company? So you've worked with some of the most wealthy people in, in America. What's that been like? What have you, what have you learned from, from that experience? It's fascinating. I mean, the wealthiest people in America live in a different world, um, <laughs> very different than the rest of us. And it was cool for me because I spent my 20s getting to peek into that world when I otherwise never would have had access to that world. Some things that I learned are wealthy people make decisions in decades, not days. So they're very forward looking. They're very patient. Um, something like this comes fairly easily to them when they think about, okay, if I'm going to be a steward of my money, I need to be making decisions in 10-year increments, not you know monthly increments. So definitely in psychology, we would call that temporal perspective. So wealthy people have very good temporal perspective. They tend to be maniacal about taxes. Um, so they're very aware of how much they're paying in taxes how they can reduce the amount of taxes that they're paying. And they hire smart people to be around them, people that they know are smarter than them in those particular areas that they are not good at. I think what makes them wealthy is they know their genius and they're able to stick to that. And so that tends to accelerate their wealth creation when they know, okay, I'm not going to try to do everything. I'm going to hire people that are smarter than me to do their respective jobs. And I'm going to keep focusing on this. So a lot of times that wealth creation vehicle is running their company. So once they start to hit that multi-seven or eight figure, even into nine figures, they're thinking, how can I hire a team around me? Because my time is now so valuable mm. that I can't spend it doing these other things. So those are definitely 
the major themes that I came across with wealthy people. Um, wealthy people are still human. They still live a very human experience. And we tend to think that money is the great elixir of all problems. And it's not. Um, you know, there are still family issues. There are still personal development issues that need to be addressed. I've found extremely wealthy people to still experience imposter syndrome. It's just a very human experience. And so I found, especially helping people through eight and nine figure exits, that what people really seek is purpose more than anything else. Um, there were a couple cases where we helped one business owner, he had a factory local here in Massachusetts. Um, he sold his company for a little over $62 million. And um, shortly after he sold that company, he ended up drinking every day um, just because he, he was lost without a source of identity or a sense of purpose. And so for business owners, it's very important to think about what is that that gives you purpose? And it's, it's isolating because people will think, oh, this guy's nothing to worry about. He is $62 million minus taxes in the bank. Um, his life is great. The truth of the matter is that we all seek purpose. And so if you are getting close to that exit and you know transitioning your purpose, in a sense, you need to start to think about how are you going to spend your time yeah. in ways that are fulfilling to you after the exit. Have you seen people that have sold their business and then gone back and started something else? Absolutely. That's quite yes. common, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, especially first generation wealth, it's something in the DNA. It's just they need to stay busy and creative and moving. And that doesn't change no matter how much money you have in the bank. Um, another person that I worked closely with um, was a hedge fund manager on Wall Street, and he had more money than he'll ever need in his entire life. And he was still leaving to go to the office every day at 6 a.m. That's just something in his wiring. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, are of that mindset, aren't they? I mean, you're the psychologist, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's good to, um, I heard this recently on a podcast, actually, that the number one trait of a great leader was self-awareness. And it's really important to know if you are that type of person um, and you are going to sell, like what, what's important to you. Because the other thing that tends to suffer with someone who has that type of DNA is the personal side of things and is the family. Yeah. So you need to pay attention to that and pay attention to the people who have been supporting you and been around you the whole time and what their wants, needs, and desires are as well, I would say you could avoid a lot of pain and heartache if you if you spend some time asking them what what they envision after the exit too. I'm thinking about the the finances and psychology and you know there's we talk a lot about the money mindset. What tips do you have for people to have a healthy money mindset in terms of scaling up their business? Yeah, that's a great question. Money is extremely personal. Um, and it's a way for us to express our values. And one of the hardest things for a lot of us is the scarcity mindset. So I would say that you need to, for a business owner, it's extremely important to nurture your mindset and your mental health. So taking time for daily practices, 
you know, such as meditation or exercise in the morning, if you're more of a physical person or having a coach or a therapist, someone that you can talk to, I mean, that's going to have a huge effect on the success of your business. I definitely think, you know, Jeff Bezos, who is the richest person in the world, I guess he's in a close race with Elon Musk. Um, but one of Amazon's pillars is frugality. And I like that because I think that sometimes we can get sold on a vision, but we also have to be pragmatic business owners. And we do have to be frugal when we're starting out. When I started out, I built my own website because I couldn't afford to hire a web designer. And now I know how to build websites. And that's a cool arrow to have in my quiver, so to speak. So I think that being frugal and scrappy in the beginning is super important. And building the health of your business is very similar to building the health of your personal balance sheet. It's really just spend less than you make. As you grow, you do have to recognize when you have to let go of some things and you have to start delegating. But I think that it's important to reward yourself along the way. For example, if and it's knowing your values and knowing where to express those with money. So one example that I see often is like how people feel about cars. There are some people that are super passionate about their cars and that's where they like to express their wealth. There are other people who could care less and think their car just gets them from A to B. So if you're the latter, don't spend money on a Range Rover because you think it's a sign of success. Be more frugal about that because maybe you care more about traveling. So you need to pick and choose your spots of where you want to invest and spend money in your personal life, just like you do in your business. If you um, have a creative side to you and you want to build your website and that gives you money to hire a key employee, then that's the type of decision. There's always a trade-off. But coming back to the idea of know thyself, know where to pick and choose your spots and always stay true to what your values are. I think a lot of times when people start making money for the first time, they think this is what wealthy people are supposed to do. And I can promise you, like when I was a little kid, I would drive, you know, anytime we drove through a wealthy neighborhood, I would think, oh, these are the people that have all the money. Not always true. Having seen the balance sheets of those wealthy people, it's not always as it appears. And some of the wealthiest people that I worked with, you would never know. So, you know, it's just about picking and choosing how to use money to express your values, having an element of frugality, but not scarcity. That's a very important distinction. Frugality in the sense of living within your means um, and having a having a plan. I mean, I think that's just the number one thing that I've seen go wrong is like I said, with the Yogi Berra quote, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. And the other thing is like, I love giving people context because some people were way underspending. There were a lot of business owners that had parents that came from the depression, especially when I was living in the South, where I was able to say, it's okay for you to spend more money. And there were, you know, like, live your life. There's an element of you've created this and you need to enjoy it. Um, and there are other people where I'm like, you're way outside your means. So you need to come back. So having a financial planner gives a lot of peace of mind because people don't necessarily have that context on their own. That was a lot. That's fascinating. <laughs> um, 
Scale Her Up is, is all about women in business. You know, you're working with women in business. What's it like for yourself? What's your experience, you know, through your career? I, I guess the financial industry, it's a, it's a man's world, really. Oh, yes. I mean, that was another part of the reason why I left because it, it's unfortunate that it's so common, but I experienced a lot of sexual harassment when I was in financial services. There just weren't women in leadership positions that I could look up to really. And the ones that were, I didn't think embodied a feminine way to do things. And I don't think that you necessarily have to become masculine to be a strong female leader. And I just wasn't seeing any mentors. I was getting sexually harassed. I wasn't working with any female clients. And I think like a lot of women, I just had had enough of that. So I never thought I was going to become an entrepreneur. I, I almost got pushed into it in a way. Um, but it made me come to terms with a lot of the personal growth that I had to do, which was I kept falling into partnerships with men and giving away my power and thinking that I needed them to be successful. And the truth of the matter is that I didn't. I was very capable of creating a successful firm on my own. But I think that women do tend to give away their power more readily um, than, than men. And I don't want to say that to, to make a comparison, but I think life just kept forcing me in a direction of having to step into my own power. I think one of the coolest things is I was doing it incrementally. And then I gave birth to my son at the beginning of the year and my business has quadrupled since then. So I think becoming a mother and really embodying all of the power that comes with the feminine, also nurturing my mindset. I invested in a coach for the very first time this year. And I don't think that's a coincidence that I've grown so fast since I started nurturing my mindset because I was a student athlete. So I always had a coach all the way until college, you know, I, until I was 22 and then from 22 to 30, didn't really have a coach or mentor. So I think having a coach or some sort of mentor is hugely important to your development. But yeah, for me, so a lot of it's been about mindset. I did come in with some element of financial savvy, um, but knowing personal finances is different than knowing business finances. So that's been a bit of a learning curve for me as well. I would say I've just gone with that same mantra of, okay, spend less than I'm making and also prioritize paying yourself because you are the number one employee of your business. And um, if you are not careful about it, your business will just suck everything out of you. So you need to make sure that you're giving back to yourself and prioritizing. One of the first line items that you should have is a salary for yourself. And so I, I run my business that way. So I pay myself a salary, make room for taxes, and then it forces me to run the business off of whatever's left over after that. And it will increase as I grow. It gives me the stamina to continue staying the best employee in my business. I'm going to go back to what you were saying about um, the birth of your son um, mm -hmm. and your business quadrupling in the 11 months since he's come along. A lot of people will think, I can't do this because I've got the kids to look after. Isn't that interesting that you've just flipped that on the head? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I had that whole thought process. I thought I need to be become successful first before I start a family. That was my whole thing. And then I realized like, I can't, I just 
can't wait for that. I, a family is the most important thing to me. I've always wanted to be a mother. You know, that's a biological clock that I'm on. So I realized that I had to make that a priority. And it is so interesting how once I emphasized my values and priorities, I ended up becoming more successful than I've ever been before. I highly encourage you never to think of motherhood as an excuse for not following your passions. You certainly do need a support network around you. I'm very grateful. My husband and I definitely share responsibilities. If it's not your husband or a partner, having some sort of support network around you, such as your parents or maybe your siblings, or if you can afford daycare, there's nothing that a mother can't do. That's what I've found to be true. As, as a mother myself of teenagers, I think the skills that we develop as a mother are so transferable into business and career and everything as well. So, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And my own mother, as she, you know, she had she had careers along the way, but she really didn't start her main career until we were out of the house. And she's just she brings a totally different element. And she's actually found her own massive success um, since we've you know, all become adults. Um, but I think it's absolutely because of those transferable skills. I almost think business seems easy after raising three kids. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> do, do women have a different attitude to money than men? I mean, it would be a massive generalization, but, but do we? It is a massive generalization. I think on the whole, yes, I think that women tend to be more conservative than men. That also makes them better investors than men. Women are more patient and they get the long game and they don't get um, seduced by the sexy complex products of Wall Street. They kind of get that this is a long game and they're willing to see that through. I will say, I think there's a caveat for female entrepreneurs. I tend to find female entrepreneurs uh, have a much higher risk appetite. In that case, I think there's individuality to everybody's risk tolerance, because I've also worked with men who are much more conservative. And I've worked with women um, where, and I have a pretty high risk tolerance and I've worked with women where their risk tolerance scares me. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual. But if you were to make generalizations in terms of like the law of large numbers, then yes, I would say women tend to tend to be more conservative than men, which again, like I said, um, tends to make them better investors. I don't know what it's like in the States, but here, basically I read the report and that's what spurred me on to create Scale Her Up. But there are only one in three entrepreneurs in the UK are female and men are five times more likely to scale their business up to over a million pounds in turnover than women are. That report then looked into the, the reasons for this and that for female entrepreneurs, access to funding is much less than for men. Do you have any experiences of, of like investment funding in, in businesses? Yeah. So I, so all my clients are privately held companies. However, my grandfather was one of the first venture capitalists here in Boston. Mm -hmm. And so I have been involved in the entrepreneur community um, since I was little and it is pretty devastating. Only 2% of venture funding goes to female founders, which is insane when we make up over 50% of the population. Yeah. Um, so it's a massive problem. I think it's a problem that Silicon Valley is, I, I know they're aware of it. That doesn't mean that it's going to change overnight. The, the problem is, and like I said, I, I work with 
privately funded, so bootstrapped companies that are not taking on venture funding. However, I am a coach at Babson College for female entrepreneurs who typically are looking for funding. And the problem is that they are they're pitching to a room full of men who yeah. don't necessarily understand or can relate to the product or service that they're offering. And it's just, we're human beings. We're going to tend to gravitate towards what it is that we know. And men understand each other and they have the same problems. And those aren't always the same problems as women. So the fact that women aren't sitting at that conference room table is the biggest issue. You know, they're, they're definitely aware of it. They're, there are a few organizations here in the U.S. that have formed to specifically address this. Um, so women VCs mentoring other female VCs co- so they can rise to become partners themselves. Um, I think it's probably going to take 10 to 20 years uh, to even get, I mean, 2% is like a joke. So getting to any sense of equality is is probably going to take quite a while, but it's going to start with the decision makers and making room at the table for women to become the decision makers. I love the mission of what you're doing. And so I was listening to some of the interviews and I think it's just so powerful to hear other people's stories. It makes you realize that entrepreneurship is is quite messy, no matter how perfectionist or OCD you may be. There are just a lot of things that you can't control. The power of other people's stories, it's cathartic. And it's really nice to hear that you're not alone um, in the challenges and also the successes that you experience. And so I love the mission of what you're doing, because I think just having conversations about this, um, it raises awareness and it makes you feel less alone because I know the number one thing with business owners is that feeling of loneliness. So if you can have a place, especially for female entrepreneurs, to come and hear the stories of other female entrepreneurs or take anything away from our episode today, then that's a really great mission to have. Oh, thank you. I'm glad it's working. I'm glad it, I'm, you're managing to reach out. We're getting, getting people from America and Australia contacting me now. So yeah, it's great. And you know, it's, it's just not here local in my little town in Aberdeenshire or, you know, it's, it's a global issue as well, which is, it's, yes, it is. It's a, it's a big deal. So what have, what, have been the, what have been the challenges that you've had to overcome then with your business? I think, again, so going back to hiring that coach at the beginning of the year, um, I was on the phone with her and she said, you don't have a skill set or an expertise issue. You have a value and a confidence issue. And when she said that to me, I was taken aback a bit and I... I didn't think that I did, but I, I did. And I, you know, growing up as a, especially a female athlete, I was an ice hockey player. So I always felt like I can do everything that the boys can do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I was just naturally confident. So for her to point that out to me after having a 90 minute conversation with me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, Oh my God, I do have a value and a confidence issue. That's why I haven't been growing. And as soon as I identified that and started nurturing my mindset, that's really when I started becoming more successful. And I think for women, a lot of that gets reflected in our prices. A lot of us are service-based businesses and we severely underprice ourselves. And I was doing that. I was doing a ton of work 
um, on a complimentary basis or for far less than I would be compensated in corporate America. And again, going back to the fact that I'm the number one employee in my business, um, that was an imperative for my revenue that I needed to address um, the value issue and to raise my prices. And I was scared to do it at first. And then she pointed something out to me, which was your, I said, but what if I, what if I charge that? And then I'm not delivering that value. And she said, you will, you're, you know, you will deliver the value in line with your prices. And so having the courage to do that, to charge, not what you think you are worth. I think that's one of the biggest problems is I think women think I need to charge what I'm worth, but it's charge the value, charge what's in line with the value of what you're delivering. And that's a big distinction because you could be delivering massive value to somebody that has nothing to do with your worth. You are innately worthy just for being here on the planet. So that gets conflated a lot in the coaching world I've found. Um, and an example is like, you know, with, a, uh, I heard this, I think it's, you know, some sort of fable, but um, there was like a printing press that the machine broke down on Christmas Eve and the guy didn't know what to do because he had no idea what was broken. So he called the technician and the technician came in and charged him a thousand dollars and he said $1 for turning the screw, $999 for knowing which screw to turn. Yes. And that, that anyone that runs a newspaper is going to pay what it takes to get the printing press running again. So that's been the biggest reminder for me is I need to charge for the value that I'm delivering to the client and kind of get it. It's funny because like in labor, it was all about like getting my mind out of the way and letting my body do its thing. And it's the same thing with business, it's like getting my mind out of the way and letting my skills and expertise do its thing. Oh, that's oh, such a valuable lesson for, for everyone listening, I think. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm fantastic. glad. So your I business just, has grown so much over, the, over this last year. What are, you, what are your ambitions for the future? So I, um, I really enjoy working closely with people one-on-one. So for me, I do envision theory, uh, keeping a boutique nature to it. Um, I'm working with more and more successful female entrepreneurs, which I think is really cool because honestly, at one point in time, I didn't even know if they were out there Um, (laughs) and I'm finding them. It's taking a while to find them because they are few and far between. The cool thing is that I see myself in them. And so being able to empower somebody who resembles me is is really cool. And and the big thing for my firm is is about wealth creation. There, in terms of the wealth that moves and shakes the world, like the really, really big money, there just aren't women there at all. You know, we point to over here in the US, like Sarah Blakely and Whitney Wolf heard and being able to point to two women that are billionaires when there are hundreds of male billionaires is just not enough. So my firm is really about being a vehicle of wealth creation for women by getting them access to the right advice. Um, I still envision, like I said, staying boutique in nature and working very closely with my clients. Uh, we just hired two chief investment strategists, which is cool. This is kind of the first time that I'm elevating myself a little bit out of that practitioner mode and more into an executive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so hopefully I'll be taking on an assistant here in Q2. And even for me, that's a little bit of letting go of, you know, some of those tasks, but I'm recognizing that I, I, if I stay there, I'm not really going to be serving myself or the client. So this year will really be about elevating me from practitioner to executive. And so you'll have to check in with me next year on how that process goes. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to reconnect with you and see how it's going. I think it's great that you're there to help these successful female entrepreneurs, but I guess in their business, they're maybe a bit further on in their journey than you. So you're, you're rubbing shoulders with some very successful female business owners, which can't help but have an impact on the growth of your business as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's an interesting position because I, even though I can mentor them on the wealth creation journey for themselves personally, it's almost like they're mentoring me on the growth of my company, which is kind of this cool mix of um, mix of skill sets and experience. What else do you think there is that we can do to bring about this revolution to get female business owners right up there being really successful? I, I think awareness is the first step. And I think talking about it openly over the last five years has really, you know, especially when you're talking about the venture capital world has really forced leaders to start to become aware of those things that need to change. As far as the business owner personally, in terms of their own wealth creation journey, I would say that consulting with a financial planner, even if it's for like a one-time financial plan, will give you the context of what you need to achieve your own personal goals. And there are a lot of ways to interact with a financial advisor, financial planner. The designation we have here in the U.S. is CFP, Certified Financial Planner. You can do a one-time financial plan with people. That's like a one-time cost where you can just, if you're more of a DIY person, you can get that context. But having that sooner in your career is going to be really important because that's going to give you something to shoot for personally. And you can always exceed those goals. Um, but I think that's really important. And in terms of as a global movement, the, mo- the more women start to become successful, we're starting to get into positions where we can hire and support and give business to other female owners. So that's one of the coolest things that I've seen is as I've grown, I'll likely be hiring a female assistant. Um, I contract a lot of female work. I don't want to say like replacing the good old boys club, but creating some sort of men tend to be really good at that. They, you know, the good old boys club has that name because they're so used to giving business to each other. The cool thing is like, as women are becoming more successful, we're able to start hiring other women. For me, I think it's really about hiring the best person for the job, but certainly more women are going to be represented as we start to grow in terms of our own personal success. And I think my generation is very much dedicated to female empowerment and pulling other females up with them uh, versus being the only female in the room. So I think that mental shift as well will be a massive contributor to the future. Couldn't agree more, which is why it's why you and I are talking here today. So yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah, just going to finish off with my usual last question. Is there anything that I should have asked you, Caitlin, that I didn't ask? I think you covered it, honestly. I feel like I got, you know, all of the main points that I would have wanted to get across to somebody. So 
kudos to you. I can tell it's not your first time talking to a female entrepreneur and you're really getting to the, to the crux of what's important for all of us, really. So no, I would just say the main takeaway is believe in yourself and you can do this. Um, you are just as capable as anybody else. You can. A, a colleague of mine quote from her daughter, and it's, uh, I can, I will, watch me. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes. Take that mentality into every day and Absolutely. small, small actions. They're going to add up in the long run. That's what it all comes down to. Oh, Caitlin, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being on the Scale Her Up podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brenda. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Scale Her Up, the female entrepreneur's show. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And please join our Facebook community at Scale Her Up. Please connect with me, Brenda Hector, on social media and drop me a message to let me know you're enjoying the podcast. Or even better, pop a wee review on iTunes. I'm going to finish by reminding you, only one in three UK entrepreneurs are female and men are five times more likely to scale their business to over one million in turnover than women. If we started and scaled our businesses to the same extent as men, it would add 250 billion to the UK economy and provide millions of jobs. Ladies, you can do it and we're going to make a massive difference.